All right, so hello everybody. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Back to 2 Samuel. Glad to see y'all are here today. We're closing in on September. Isn't that something? Boy, so um, we should, like as I said last week, we should be here for a number of Tuesdays. I'm not aware of any for, or for which we'll be gone. Um, everything should work fine. Maybe if I can get my pockets all put together here, make sure I'm plugged in. Okay. So, I think what I'll do today, since I don't really have any announcements, I will go and open with prayer, and then we'll see if there's anything y'all would like to talk about before we plunge into 2 Samuel, okay? Would y'all pray with me? Gracious Lord, here we are again on this Tuesday, a Tuesday, to come together, take this time out of our week, to enjoy the fellowship, and to study your word. We are blessed to be able to do that. We're blessed by the gift of Scripture. Um, and we pray as we do every time we gather that your Holy Spirit will fill us with discernment, energy, enthusiasm, and help us to connect to these stories of David from 3,000 years ago and to see that his stories are the stories of your people and we are among your people. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so is there anything y'all would like to talk about today? Yes, Douglas. You mean a different translation? We went to, for a while there, we went to the Common English Bible, and we used it for a while, and then I know that Arthur and I weren't always happy with the translation choices made in it, and thought it was a little too, I don't want to use the word dumbed down, but it's kind of written at a fifth or sixth grade level, and a lot of the words choices it made. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. What, what's funny? What's funny, Doug? I know you're a, you're a lifetime principal. Yeah. So, so we, we left the CEB and we went to the NIV, but I use, in my own work, every week, I principally use the NRSV because I think it's the closest in English to the Greek or the Hebrew, and I use the NIV. I will occasionally use the CEB. I'll use different translations. And on, I have software on my computer which will bring up a passage in parallel. So you, you can get it the same passage in like eight translations, which is very handy actually, because guess what? None of us read the Greek, do we? None of us read the Hebrew, do we? We read it all in translation. So we just have to remember that we're reading in translation, and no translation is perfect. And so that's the story, though. We went kind of the NRSV, CEB, and now the NIV 
kind of pastor's choice. But the NIV is the best-selling translation in the U.S. So if people don't have one, that's usually, if they go to like the Mardell or somewhere, there's like 90 versions of the, um, you know, like the NIV Bible for 8th graders and one for 7th graders. And I'm just kidding, but they have a lot of them. So that's, that's that story. So, okay, that's the other hand. Yes? Can you enlighten us on uh, where the, uh, where, what happened to the Levites? We were talking about the Ark. Okay, and the yes. Ark was basically the tribe of Levi's job to take care of the Ark. Where, what happened to the, them whenever David came along? Where were the Levites transporting them? They, they are still the family of the priests, okay? And when you get all the way to the New Testament, like Elizabeth, who you meet in Luke 1, she's from the line of priests. Now, it gets messy because so many of the priests are killed. Remember, the priests were killed very much in Nob, but the, the Levites don't have land, right? They're not given land like the other tribes because they're supposed to be supported by the tribes. So the Levites are still around. They're still the line. They're still the family from which the priests come if you want to think about it that way. So they don't disappear, but there are, it, it's not a nice, neat, straight line, like other parts. I mean, I used to think like the Bible, like I, surely they had, you know, the Hebrew scriptures and a nice, neat, straight line, and they were keeping the law, or at least trying to keep the law. No, that's not it at all. It's up and down and up and down, and you know, Josiah, about 600 years before Jesus, they they rediscover the law. They're going to have a building project, and they rediscover these scrolls. And he ripped the king rips his garments in half because he realized they had gotten so far away they didn't even know that there had been these scrolls. So I gave up that straight line part a long time ago. Yes. The Levites would have been the Levites would have been concentrated around the temple or the tabernacle, right? Because their job, the it's hard for us to think about it this way. But the temple, well, let's put it in the temple terms because that's what's there in Jesus this day. The temple is the beating heart of Judaism. In Jesus's day, every Jew knew that the beating heart of the religion, as a religion, was in the temple because that's where the presence of God could be found they thought okay and um, so the places that they would meet elsewhere in the diaspora or like in Capernaum or in Galilee they would have synagogues but synagogues are only synagogue is Greek for meeting place okay and the people there are like rabbis, teachers, the Pharisees, but not the priests. The priests are the one in charge of the priestly system, which is centered in Jerusalem, right? Because that's where the temple is. So when you meet in Luke 1, Zechariah, he's going to do his, pre he wins, it's his time. It's probably the only time in his life he ever did it, because there are so many of them, right, that now his big day has come. And that's what the Luke, Luke, Luke 1 story is. Zechariah's big day has come, probably the only time in his life that he actually did the priestly duty in the temple. So yes? The Levite priests, they're not synonymous with the rabbis. They're some 
No, you have the priests. And rabbi just means teacher. So you have the priests, and then you have, who are the, who are the opponents of Jesus is a way to think about it. The priests are the high priest Caiaphas, the Pharisees as a group, the scribes or teachers of the law are, um, we won't, I won't, won't get into the Sadducees, but no, they're not the same. So Pharisees are, and scribes are sort of keepers of the law. Priests are the keeper of the temple. What, where is the beating heart of Judaism? With the Pharisees or with the priests? In Jesus' day, the priests. Well, it's, there are Pharisees in Jesus' day, and it, it's, they, he has priests with him, yes. So, but you, so you can't so much take your, your categories from Jesus' day and carry them a thousand years before to, to David's day, right? But they did have rabbis back in David's day. Well, a, a, a rabbi is a, a teacher. They didn't, I don't think in the Hebrew, how often do we come across the word rabbi? Not very often because... They called Jesus rabbi, didn't they? Well, but we're... Yeah. we're you're back on Jesus's day. See, see what happens is in David's day, there's still a people all concentrated in a small area. The land of Israel is teeny tiny, teeny tiny, Denton to Waxahachie, Fort Worth to the mid cities, teeny tiny. When the Assyrians overrun the 10 Northern kingdoms and they're scattered, that would begin a process over hundreds of years of the Jews becoming ever more scattered in Alexandria, Egypt, and other places. And that's how Jews are in these cities that Paul visits. Well, that requires a different system because they're not going to be able to come to Jerusalem three times a year. So they, they begin meeting in synagogues and meeting places. You, the rabbis rise, right? When the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, 40 years after Jesus, the priestly system and the priests go away. They're killed or they're in the un unemployment lines because there is no temple, right? If you're in charge of the temple and there's no temple, well, what are you gonna do? Become an electrician, I guess. So, <laughs> so, so and, and what becomes ascendant in Judaism? The Pharisees, because they don't require a temple. The saying becomes, wherever two or three gather, there God is. That's a Pharisee saying. And so the Pharisees' way of being Jewish didn't require a temple. It was all centered upon Torah and the law, right? And so there's this dramatic shift, dramatic change in Judaism from Jesus to 100 years later, 200 years later, 300 years later, right? And it's caused the temple is destroyed. And that changes everything. Changes everything. And that's why, really, we want to take the Judaism that we encounter with our friends and neighbors today, and we want to carry it back to Jesus' day. And you can't really do it. Because the Judaism of Jesus' day is built around the temple, animal sacrifice, 
The blood, literally, all of that. Okay? Well, nobody here goes down to, you know, synagogue, bet, whatever, down the street and is sacrificing animals there. Judaism has to change because of what? Because of circumstances, right? And of course, when the Christians come, they take it all in a new direction focused upon Jesus. Did I get enough right there? <laughs> Two thumbs up. This is my seminary trained <clears throat> Reverend Lauren Gerlach here. Okay, so anything else? Those are all good because I'm telling you, most people don't don't have any clue about this. They don't, they don't even realize, most Christians don't even realize the temple was destroyed 40 years after Jesus and what that meant for Judaism. And they'll just take the Judaism they know a little bit about today and they'll take it, they'll just read it all into the Gospels and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Wow, okay, anything else? Okay, I better get a drink after all that. I mean, a drink of water. <laughs> Not that I would, it's after, it's five o'clock somewhere. No, no, never mind. Okay, so where are we? We are in 2 Samuel. We are in the pivotal chapter seven. And it's pivotal because it's in chapter seven of 2 Samuel that God makes this extraordinary promise to David. That one from his household, one from his line, one from his, one of his descendants, blood descendants, will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Okay? And um, that will be the case for hundreds of years until the Babylonians come along and destroy the temple and then as time goes on, the Jews begin looking for a rightful king from the line of David who would be called the Anointed One or the Messiah or the Messiah. So, so chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is really important and we've seen both God's promise last week and we saw part of David's prayer in response last week and we are now at verse 25 of David's prayer. So we are going to finish up David's prayer here. And then we're going to look at chapter 8, because it comes after 7. Verse 25. And now, Lord God, now Yahweh God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. So this is David's appeal to God to not only make these promises, but keep these promises. It shouldn't surprise anybody that in Jesus' day there were many Jews who felt like God had made big promises but they were just not being kept and maybe would never be kept. They would read the scroll of Isaiah and the scroll of the other scrolls of the prophets with these extravagant promises in them about, you know, new heavens and new earth and people coming together and swords being beaten into plowshares and the rest and so I'll always remember there was a very good young New Testament scholar um, her first book was on Romans Paul's letter to the Romans and she said 
she said, you know what Romans is? Romans is a defense of the righteousness of God. It's a defense of God as promise keeper. That God not only makes promises, God keeps promises. Because that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the embodiment of God's promise keeping. And for Paul, it's tragic that so many of his fellow Jews don't see that. They don't understand. Yet, yes, in Jesus, God is keeping the promises that God made centuries before to his people. So in verse 25, David is appealing to the promise keeping of God. And then David goes on. Do as you promise so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, Yahweh Almighty is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Please, God, just do as you promised. Verse 27, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant. Remember, through Nathan the prophet, that's kind of how it works, right? Saying, I will build a house for you. Now, this is not a house of, of wood. This is the, how, the, the ancestry, the descendants. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Yahweh, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. You are the one who makes promises and keeps promises. That's why today if you talk with pastors and preachers and teachers and, and you, you tell them, well, look at these promises, you know, um, haven't been kept or something. They'll say, well, just wait. Just wait. You know? Um, it's obviously not the end yet because there is still more to come. Because God is the keeper of promises. Don? All through uh, David's period, he's always honored God. He's following God. You could look at this prayer that he has doubts about God. And that's sort of strange because he, why would he have to pray to God with the idea that God might not follow up on what he has said? I don't know that you have to read it as him fearful that God won't keep these promises. He he's just, he's just, because he is, he's affirming that God has made this God God, yes, God, keep these, keep these promises. I don't know. I just, but then again, David is like you and me, isn't he? Well, you know, and so we, we. Well, I was wondering if this is where he starts to change. Well, we've seen some of that already. Because if you go back to David and Goliath, there is much where David is going to God with everything. And we're coming to a time when there's less of that. And then we're going to come to a time when there's really none of that. And so if David is, is losing his confidence in God, which I don't really know I should read into this prayer, but if I should, then... Let's see, it's like Arthur's sermon. It's about David. It's not about God. I mean, David is worried... It, it could, it, in that way, it could reflect David's insecurities. 
right? Because God is the keeper, maker and keeper of promises. God is the maker and keeper of promises. But David is weak like we are weak, right? I mean, yeah. We all, is there anybody here who doesn't ever struggle with doubts about all this and wrestles with, where, where is God in this? I think we all do, right? Even if we affirm that God is God. Yes, Lauren? Well, I was just thinking from Don's point, it also speaks to like the human tendency that we have of like, there are times when we feel like we need to remind God, remember, hey God, <laughs> you said it would be this way, like, which comes to that like just wait and see thing. But like that's why the whole notion of like the petition type of prayer is what it is, right? Like, okay, come on God, like this verse 25 ends right here, halfway through the sentence. Look what it ends with. Do, do, do as, as you promised. End of verse. And then the next one starts. Like it just has wrapped up in that so much human tendency, I feel like. I think we have a tendency to be in a hurry, to be impatient, and we know that we aren't the best at keeping promises. Yeah. We do tend to make God a better version of ourselves, which is not what God is, who God is. He's not just a better version of us, right? So. So we read all that into God. All good, good, good comments. Verse 28. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. One other thought on what Don and Lauren led us to talk about. Does anybody have a... I'm so old. Uh, you remember, anybody here remember dictaphones? Yeah. Does, yeah, does anybody have a dictaphone here? Does anybody have... Anybody around with a, with a steno pad or a tape recorder to record these words? No. No. Um, these words were written at the time, um, but pulled together, edited, compiled at a later time. So inevitably, what do you get in a prayer like this? You get part of what the writer wants you to know. The writer inspired by God. God breathed in that way. The truth about God, that he, is, that he is the keeper of promises, right? So you always have to remember that, I think, when you read this as, as well. It's that you're, you're, hearing, you're hearing David, but you're also hearing later voices. Because all of this, in part, is, I mean, part of what it is, is God's revelation of himself. Well, it's probably, people talk about that. Certainly, it's done and finished by, nobody picks a time later than the exile. I would pick an earlier time than that. But do we really know? We really don't know. But we know, we know that it comes together, that it's 
that we are we told who wrote it could there be several writers of it that are put together and compiled and then edited and then brought whatever it is God says here I'm happy with this right that's the way I kind of think God says here I'm happy with this but it's not God's dictation that that, that gets you into trouble saying it is you when you remove completely the human element and it's just God's dictation that's what the Quran is in Islam and Islam has a burden because they believe that the Quran is God's dictation that we don't have because most most don't think it's God's dictation most Christians okay so that's the end of the prayer David has prayed the prayer now he, this promise has been made to him so now we come to chapter 8 okay so before we do I have a few slides I brought as a lead into chapter 8. I'm coming over here so I can use not stand in your way. Okay. So let's see. This is the slide I brought last time. This is the city of David, um, the city that David conquers, right? And on the hilltop is going to be where the temple is. Maybe they're saying he put something up there now, though I said last week I doubted it. This is what it will come to look like. The city walls will be expanded on this hilltop, long and narrow, and where the arrow is pointing is where Mount Moriah is, the very little tippy top, and that is where the temple is placed. In Herod's day, the temple mount will be constructed by cutting the tops off some of these hills and filling in the valleys to bring it up and level enough to put the gigantic temple mount structure but this where the dome of the rock is that you've seen in many photographs that's where the temple stood in Solomon's day because it's Solomon who builds this temple and it's destroyed by the Babylonians but Solomon David does not build this temple Solomon builds this temple but that's what it will come to look like and of course then like happens it expands and it tends to expand toward the upper left side of the screen okay because there's a valley left on the southeast side of the screen the bottom right side of the screen called the Kidron Valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is and last week we talked about David conquering this city of David through through tunnels and the uh, waterways so there's a picture of a person down in some of those tunnels and waterways used by David, developed further by Hezekiah. Yeah, there we go, down underneath uh, Jerusalem today. If you're claustrophobic, you don't want to think about this, I don't think. But there they are, these uh, probably Israeli youngsters, you know, going down there exploring and, and everything. Interesting, huh? Okay, so I'm going to put this map up here because David is going to become a conqueror. He is going to become an empire builder. All right, so this right here, there's, there's the Dead Sea, there's Jerusalem. This is basically the area 
right here, right inside that circle of that is where the Israelites are. And he's going to expand across the Dead Sea into Moab, Edom, going to push the Philistines back into that little tiny strip, mm -hmm. up into Aram, to the Arameans. So David is going to expand what you and I would call the borders of the Israelite kingdom. And Solomon is going to expand them further. So I'm going to leave that up while we look at chapter 8. Okay, cool. Any questions about the map? Just, just picture it. It's just, just expanding. He's going to be an empire builder. That's what he's going to do. He's con going to conquer other people by means that will make your stomach turn. This is the ancient world, and it is, by and large, quite barbaric. In the verse, chapter 8, verse 1, in the course of time, in the course of time, no real markers of time, in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Methagama, probably a place, from the control of the Philistines. We don't really know what, where it is, but it's probably a place name, not a person name. David also defeated the Moabites, right? Just on the southern, southeastern side of the Dead Sea. Ruth is a Moabite. He defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death. Probably this is men only. And the third length was allowed to live. So, David kills, executes, two-thirds of the men. Probably the potential fighting men. Though it doesn't say that, that's probably. Because what would be David's purpose in this? If you're the empire builder and conquer, control. Right? So you eliminate from Moab the possibility of rising in rebellion against David by having by executing a large number of the Moabite fighting men. So the Moabites became subject to David and they brought him tribute. Tribute in the ancient world is payment, money, gold, silver, whatever, wealth that you pay in tribute to your conqueror, to the person whose empire you are part of. In the Roman Empire, the provinces, the peoples, that Roman conquered paid tribute to Caesar, filling up the Roman treasury. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD, they took cartloads back. Maybe they called it tribute, but they really just took it um, from the Jewish treasury. And it's said, or speculated, that the money they got from conquering the Jews in 70 AD and taking the temple treasury back with them, that money was used to build the Colosseum because that opened in 80 A.D. Could be. Three, moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. What does it mean to hamstring a horse? What? 
So they can't be used as chariot horses anymore, right? You cut like the tendons in the, in the leg and they become not capable of being chariot horses so that they can't be used against whom? David. David. Now, just look at these paragraphs. Has David gone to God in prayer about any of this? Nope. nope. When the Arameans of Damascus that is up north. Damascus, that, you know, interestingly, that's the Damascus of today. The Damascus of today is an ancient, 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 ancient place. So Aram is the name of this land that is today modern-day Syria. Okay, Aram, the Arameans. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, is Zobah on the map? I don't even know where Zobah is. What? Oh, up there. Wow. Okay. David is really getting it on, isn't he? So, um, when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck 22, struck not 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus. What does this mean? So now he's putting outposts out there as he extends his kingdom. You know who else did that? Rome. That's, it. That's what empire builders did. You would conquer a land and you would put your outposts out there. So that's the only way, because you're extending your what? Your control. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. Has he gone to God in prayer? The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. This has been the way, okay? But you can't, and it's certainly the way the Israelites understood it, but you can't escape the feeling that something is beginning to actually go wrong. This is all, is this what he's doing? Is this any different than the pagans would do? No. Are the people of God supposed to live like the pagans? No. no. Kings are takers. And what is David doing in chapter 8? Taking, 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 taking. It's like he doesn't want to wait on God. He wants to move forward himself. He, Pat, he's saying he doesn't want to wait on God. He wants to move forward himself. Of course, he's saying, well, God is going to do this through me, so I am God's instrument in this. You're going to see that this is... This is all leading to wreckage. Just a few chapters hence. I love that word. Just a few chapters hence. It's all, it's, it, it, David is, it's going to be a wreck. It's going to be like a giant train wreck, David's life. But, but all through the, the Old Testament, when the Israelis win, they always say, yes. God is on their side. When yes. Right. So I assume David assumes that God is with, with him in all this. And it says God is, and I guess God is, but... So why is David in trouble? Is he coming to... You, you saw it. Is he coming to God in prayer? Are things changing in David with regard to his relationship with God? 
I mean, the writer was very careful earlier on to, for us to see in David his constant inquiring of God. And where is that now? I don't know. It's just a question that I think a lot of people ask. Verse 7, David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. He's getting richer and richer and richer. From Teba and Berotai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. He's got the king. This is empire building, collecting the wealth, putting the outposts out there. When two... When two, I'm going to call him two. When two king of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with two. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. So the wealth is pouring into David's kingdom. God's kingdom, really, right? But King David dedicated these articles to Yahweh as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. What does fame, power, and wealth do to a person? Doesn't have to, but it often does, doesn't it? We can probably find examples where it doesn't, but by and large, for us humans, fame, power, and wealth changes us. For some, their life becomes a wreck. A few navigate those waters pretty well. David is not going to navigate those waters well. And all of the seeds are being planted now. They just are. You know, I mean, we're at chapter 8. The story of Bathsheba is in chapter 11. That's where it all begins to fall apart for David. David became famous after he returned. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. <sighs> Yahweh gave David victory wherever he went. Verse 15. David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right. Justin Wright, it's a two-word Hebrew phrase. Sort of Justin Wright, sort of faithfulness will get you to the ballpark. Not, not a straightforward translation, but it's, but it's, it's a good thing. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahulad, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. 
Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were priests. So it's just a listing of officials in the kingdom. That's all it is, because part of this is, you know, record keeping. The chronic book of Chronicles. That's what book of Chronicles is. It's all about record keeping. But here, there's a lot more narrative. So if you just take the whole thing simply at face value, and you had never known what was coming, you might overlook the fact that David is no longer going to God in prayer before he goes out and undertakes this huge empire-building project that took, I don't know, a long time, presumably. And you might not be ready for what's coming. The next story is a story about about David reigning with justice and righteousness. Okay? He he comes out well in this story. That's what makes that's what makes that what comes after such a tragedy. So y'all ready to read about Mephibosheth? I love this story. I've preached this story several times. Love this story. Remember who Mephibosheth is? Mephibosheth is the son of, of Jonathan, who, when he was five years old, and Saul and Jonathan were killed, and the family was abandoning the palace, they all were running out to the carts and horses and whatever, and he gets dropped, and he becomes a cripple. Okay? So, chapter 9, kind of putting the last chapter behind us. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this is a really good moment for David because typically in the ancient world, the question would be, Is there anyone left of Saul's household that I can be sure to get rid of? Right? Because I, I don't want some little kid growing up and decided he's going to take revenge on me, like happens in the movie The Godfather. Godfather 2, as a matter of fact, right? That's what the old man is the old man in the town is concerned about. The little kid growing up and wanting revenge for the killing of his father. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. That's a notable name. He actually shows up later in the story. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Because remember the promise he made to Jonathan, that he would look after Jonathan's household in the event of Jonathan's death. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Megir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Megir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. This would be 
you know, this would be this obeisance, this ancient Near Eastern practice of bowing down, probably on the ground, um, in order to show honor to David. Mephibosheth at this point has to be pretty scared. Right? Because he, these, all these people, they know the ways of the world they live in. That Mephibosheth has to be thinking, well, they found me to get rid of me. At your service. David said, Mephibosheth, at your servants, he replied. And David says, first thing to him, do not be afraid. Right? Do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to you, to your, to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. So this is a profound showering of honor upon Mephibosheth, not just in words, but he's going to get Saul's land, whatever Saul land, whatever land Saul owned, and he's going to have a place at the king's table. Always. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant? Who am I? That you should notice a dead dog like me. He's living his life quietly somewhere. He can't get around very easily. Both his legs, feet are, are crippled. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants, Ziba, right, are to farm the land for him and bring in the crop so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And we get an aside. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, so he's got a pretty good-sized workforce to get the work done. Ziba does. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. That's surprising in this world. It's shocking in this world. It's a really good moment for David that he remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan, that he remembers the promise he made to Jonathan about Jonathan's household. Now, for most of it, he couldn't do anything about. But this he could, and he finds Mephibosheth, and he's going to see that he's provided for and taken care of and honored by being able to sit at the king's table. Now, Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet, in case you forgot. So, Thoughts, questions, reflections? I just love that story. 
Mephibosheth, particularly once I learned how to pronounce his name. It's a really, it's just, the story is pretty self-explanatory. David comes out well. This is, this is an expression of David ruling and doing what is just and right. And it's going to stand in stark contrast to chapter 11. When you get to chapter 11, I'm just telling you, you're not going to heart you. You're going to have trouble believing it's even the same person that you meet in chapter 9. David, that David's hardly the same person in chapter 11 as he is in chapter 9. Okay? No, I, I don't think we're ever told what, land, what particular acreage Saul owns. You know, it would just be that, yeah. Um, I think it's so interesting how, like, throughout Scripture, there's this pattern. Like, someone is called up, and then immediately, don't be afraid. And then it's followed by, I will give you this thing that no one is expecting that doesn't add up. And then it ends, like, in this one experience like it mirrors so many other stories of scripture and what is it what what does it sound like it sounds a lot like mary and the the angel stories because angels arrive the first thing they always say is what gary brooks do not be afraid that's one of gary's favorite lines angel shows up angel says don't be afraid understandably and then tells them what's coming and it's very very unexpected that's a really good point because this is unexpected. You might say, well, of course he took care of Mephibosheth, of course. But that belies the world this happens in. The, the, what, the conquering and the execution of those fighting men and stuff, that is what this world is like that we're reading in here, not the story of Mephibosheth. Another good point. See, so if when we when we speak of King Jesus, we're all invited to sit at Jesus's table, right? Everybody's invited to sit at Jesus's table. Um, It is, you know, looking ahead to Jesus is something that you can do in David, and 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 it just makes what happens in eleven and twelve so much more tragic. And even in the chapters after that, there's just so much wreckage that comes um, because of choices that David makes. No, it's a good word. They, generally speaking, for the Jews, for ancient people, if you had an accident, like this. It would be because it was something that God did to punish you or your parents. It's the book of Job. The world falls in on Job. What do they all, they come for a while, his friends come and they're quiet for a while, but then what do they want to do is find out what Job did. Yes. Right? So, so that's, that is the perspective, largely. Because he is lame. Lame makes it even 
Okay, so let me marry that with Lauren's point. So if he's lame, and now he's invited to the honor of sitting at the king's table, Jesus invites us to sit his table at his table despite our sins. How about that? You see, wow, okay. Haven't quite put those things to, two things together quite like that before. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, this is, this is the kind of story, in addition to the promise of 2 Samuel 7, that would make David the idealized king of Israel. He's the idealized king of Israel. You know, God is on his side, he's victorious, look how kind he is. Um, God made this extravagant promise to David about one of one from his household always sitting on the throne and it's all going to run into this chapters 11 12 13 and the rest and you're gonna be left wow where did that come from and you're reminded that David isn't Jesus but all that lies ahead these are teasers right come right so, anything else on the story right there? Of, now, Mephibosheth is not gone from the story. Ziba is not gone from the story of David. But this is, this is the latest installment on David, on David and Mephibosheth. I enjoy saying his name because I can. Yeah, well, enough practice. You can do anything, right? All right, so now David's going to go after the Ammonites. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. And David thought, Aha, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. All right. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanan, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys shaved off half of each man's beard, that's a gross insult, cut off their garments at the buttocks, another gross insult, kind of nasty, and sent them away. So David has now been rejected. Dissed. Dissed. So when, you remember we go back to 1 Samuel like 25, and David was dissed by Nabal, the fool. What was David's inclination? What did he do? His blood ran hot and he got on the horse with 400 men to ride off and slaughter Nabal and all his men. Stopped only by whom? Abigail. Abigail. This is like a test today. <laughs> by Abigail. That's right. Ab and if you remember the story, he acknowledged that she saved him from the blood guilt that would have arisen if he genuinely acted on his temper. 
and slaughtered these people because he thought they had insulted him. Well, that's a pretty big insult here. When David was told about, verse 5, when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. Hmm. The king said, stay at Jericho to your beards have grown, and then come back. Which is the kind thing. He's saying, let's just go to Jericho, just wait there, just don't have to come back here and endure the humiliation of everybody seeing you with half a beard. I presume it's like this, that, like one side of the face. I could, I could try to grow a beard and nobody would know it. I have. Didn't work. So, anyway, okay. Stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. So when the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, it's a funny choice of words, isn't it? It's an Old Testament way. Obnoxious is actually smell bad, right? A noxious odor is what? A stench. Stench is another. Stench is one of the words that sounds like what it is. A stench. And, and in Scripture, Sometimes you meet the phrasing where a noxious odor rises to God. Sometimes it's a pleasing odor. Sometimes it's a noxious odor. Um, a way, the way in the Hebrew it says God is slow to anger is actually it says he has a long nose. With the idea being that if some bad things are done and the noxious odor rises from them, rise to God, he's got such a long nose that his anger will subside before he takes action. See, David needed a much longer nose in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. But now the Ammonites realize that they have become obnoxious to David. They hire 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Bet Rahab and Zohab, as well as the king of Maacah with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. So they assemble an army, right? Because they're fearful that what? This, new, this is a new King David. This is a new Israelite king who's conquered all this stuff. And he's gathered wealth and soldiers and people and all this kind of stuff. He's not just a guy running around with 600 fighters anymore. Now he's the king and the ruler of this ever-expanding empire with conquered peoples part of this empire. So I'll make it, well, of course, that's what makes it an empire. Well, on hearing all this, David sent Joab. You remember Joab? Joab has been David's commander for a long time. Joab is the one who tricked Abner when Abner was ready to change sides and bring peace, Joab tricked him and murdered him. Joab is the murderer of Abner, but David really professes not to know it, I think. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate. While the Arameans of Zobah and Rahab and the men of Tob and Ma'akah were by themselves in the open country. So there's a huge array 
of soldiers and fighting men opposing David and Joab, really, because David sent Joab in command because he's the commander of the army. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel <coughs> and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother. Remember, his third brother was killed by whom? This is Teste. Who killed Joab's, the other brother? Abner. Remember the other brother whose name was? I can't remember. Anyway. <laughs> so the other brother, he's the one who kept chasing Abner. And Abner kept saying, no, don't, don't chase me. Stop. Go back. You're going to end up dead. You're a kid. I'm experienced. You know, I'm Rambo. Turn back. But he didn't. And in the end, Abner killed him. He put, verse 10, Joab put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. So Joab does a very dangerous thing. He splits his forces. He splits his forces. They're, all, they're both forces. Both of the two halves are supposed to look after the other one. And he says, Be strong. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. <coughs> Yahweh will do what is good in his sight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans. And they fled before him. When the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Had a deezer, had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. That's a long way. They went to Helam with Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel. David is going to be victorious again. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So now the Ammonites are part of the empire. Israel has grown so much in worldly wealth, worldly power, territory. By every measure that the world has, David is a resounding success.
but is it the world's measure by which David should, should live? Should he be concerned with the world's? He's famous now and he's rich now. Is that what David should be focused on? Or should he be focused upon God and what God's desire for him is? They made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. So here's where David is. He began as this, I don't know, teenager probably, out in the backyard, tending the sheep, right? Looking after the goats. When Samuel arrives to anoint the next king of Israel, and all the brothers you would think would be the right ones aren't until finally Samuel meets David, and David is, and Samuel anoints him to be the king of Israel. But we went through this long period of time when Saul is on the throne we know that David is anointed as the next king. Saul is descending into madness, or he's falling further and further away from God, tries to kill David, even though David was brought into the royal court to play music. With Saul's approval and encouragement in the end, because he tries on Saul's armor, David confronts Goliath, defeats him. Remember the little saying that the people would sing then? You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. But we don't see then that that really changes David. That taste of fame and celebrity doesn't really change him very much. Um, and he has to go on the run with his fighting men all over the land of Judea and the Judean hills, and there's a jillion caves to hide in the rest. And you remember in chapter 24, he has the opportunity to kill Saul in a cave and foregoes it. His men can't believe it. That's not the way you do this, David. Let me tell you what, let me tell you what the smart thing is, what the world's way is. David says, no, 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 this Saul is God's anointed. No, I, we can't. Chapter 26 happens again. David has the opportunity to kill Saul and foregoes it. Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle and David becomes the king of the tribe of Judah. How long is he king of the tribe of Judah? Seven years. Seven years. That's a pretty long time. After those seven years have passed, he finally becomes, forgetting, I'm not getting into the whole Ishbosheth stuff, he finally becomes the king of the United Tribes. And that's where we've been for a while now. He's king of the United Tribes. Um, um, the second king of the united Israel. And he's victorious in battle. And he's acquiring great wealth and fame, celebrity. You see, I think, the earlier David in the story of David and Mephibosheth, where he really strives to keep the promises he made to Jonathan, all he can do is help Mephibosheth. That's the only one that anybody knows about.
who's actually from the household of Saul. And so David does. But then the victories mount, and the money mounts, the tribute, the land, the territory, the fame. And when we come back next week, he's going to be sitting in his palace on a sultry afternoon, bored out of his mind, bored, bored, bored. And he's going to look across, he's going to look across the way. He sees a woman who is also trying to deal with the heat. And she's up, right, she's upstairs. And so people would go on the top of their houses in this part of the world because it's a way to try to escape some of the heat. You go higher to try to get out of the heat, get where the breeze blows a little bit under a covering and shades. And she is bathing ba bathing <laughs> let me let, let me just look into the story for a little bit so you are you are even more intrigued <laughs> he sees her and orders that she be brought to him and he asks who she is. And he learns that she is the wife of Uriah. Now who is Uriah? Uriah we have already met. Uriah is part of David's inner circle. The closest men to David. Uriah is one of those. But still, David goes forward. He's bored. And he's famous. And he is king, dang it. What do kings, what do kings, they take, thank you. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. What do kings do? They take, 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 take. Go back in chapter 8 and look how many times Samuel says the word take. They take, 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 take. And we'll see next week where that leads. And it's a sad story. It is a sad story. And it is not the story told by Hollywood. It is not the story that you encounter. It's a story people still fight over every year. At a certain, every, every, at a certain time every year, people on Twitter, some groups, groups, they fight about this story. About what, what is it saying in it? Because they're so, it's such a shocking story. So when you come together next week, don't miss... You don't want to miss next week. I'm just telling you. You know, that's why I'm stopping right here. Got us to chapter 11. Next week, you're going to meet Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we... Uh, these scriptures, they challenge us. What, what do you do? What do you want us to do? What did you want David to do? What does it mean to be your people? What does it mean for David to be, to be your anointed king over Israel? We don't have all the answers. We're just grateful that you have called us to you. 
that we can all sit at King Jesus' table, burdened by all of our troubles and worries and sin and the rest, set those down and simply rest in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.